Well, let's start with a little survey here. How many of you know somebody, a friend, a family member who is an atheist? Raise your hand if you know somebody who's an atheist. Okay. Looks like the majority of us in here. An atheist is someone who does what? Doesn't believe in God, right? They deny the existence of God. So let's say you're, you're at Starbucks and you're sitting down with your atheist friend or family member, right? Uh, probably look, uh, you know, something like that, <laughs> right? With their atheist t-shirts and, uh, okay. So let's say you're talking to your atheist friend and you ask them, you ask them the question, why are you an atheist? Okay. What, what answers could they give you that you would find compelling and persuasive, right? So what could they say that you would find that might even one day down the road can, you know, cause you to consider converting to atheism? So let's say your atheist friend said something like this. I'm an atheist because I read this really convincing book. And so I became an atheist. How many of you here, you're ready to convert to atheism because they read a book? Yeah, that's not going to be a compelling or persuasive reason for you to become an atheist, okay? Uh, what if your atheist friend said, well, you know, my mom and dad were atheists, and, uh, you know, so that's why I'm an atheist. I kind of grew up in the atheist tradition. Is that a good reason for you to convert to atheism? Because they had a mom and dad that believed in atheism? No, that's not a, that doesn't seem to be a compelling or persuasive reason for you to become an atheist. That wasn't your family background, maybe. So that doesn't seem to be a compelling or persuasive reason for you to believe in atheism. Uh, what if they said, well, you know what? I just believe it. I just believe this stuff. I don't know. I just believe it. Well, the whole question is, well, why? Why do you believe it? Why are you an atheist? So just restating the fact that you believe it isn't compelling or persuasive. Okay, what if your atheist friend says, you know, uh, when I became an atheist... Man, it just changed my life. Uh, there's a deeper sense of purpose and meaning, and it just, I, I experienced a peace when I became an atheist. It just kind of made sense of the world. And so I just, it just changed my life. Now, are, are you ready to convert because atheism changed their life? Probably not. Maybe you'd say, okay, well, t- you know, maybe tell me more about that story. I'm curious about that story. But that doesn't seem to be a compelling or persuasive reason for you to become an atheist, right? Because atheism changed their life. So, uh, yeah, none of those seem to be very compelling or persuasive reasons. Now, what's interesting, if you have talked to your atheist friends, uh, and I have a lot of atheist friends that I talk to about this stuff all the time, they actually will never say anything like this. If I ask them why they're an atheist, they don't, they don't give me these answers. Who gives these answers? Yeah. These are the kinds of answers that Christians give. So let's say your atheist friend turns the question on you and says, hey, why are you a Christian? Now, put yourself in the shoes of the atheist or the skeptic or the unbeliever. And what does it sound like when they hear our answers? So I'm a Christian because I believe the Bible is the word of God. Now, certainly I think the Bible is the word of God. I think there's something special about the book. I think it's authoritative. But again, put yourself in the shoes of the non-Christian. So when you say you're a Christian because you believe in the Bible, the Bible's the word of God or something like that, is that compelling or persuasive for them? For many of them, it sounds like you read a book, right? Just like the atheist read a book. We have these like bumper stickers and cliches that we use in Christianity. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Settles it for who? Does that settle it for the atheist because you have a cool bumper sticker? I, I hope actually no one has that bumper sticker. <laughs> if you do, take it off your car, okay? Um, because bumper stickers don't work. Your atheist friend is going to look at you and go, oh, yeah, that Bible of yours? Uh, it's filled with errors and contradictions and historical inaccuracies, right? That is not a compelling reason alone. Now, again, do I think, do I think the Bible is the word of God? Yes. And I I have good reason to think that. I just want you to put yourself in the shoes of the the non-believer, the skeptic, the atheist. And this just is not compelling by itself. We've got to say more. Uh, What about this? I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. And that is probably the, the, the big reason many of our young people give. Junior hires, high schoolers, college students. 
that's the reason why many of them are Christians because mom and dad were Christians. So this is what I grew up doing. I grew up in church. But does that provide a compelling and persuasive reason for someone to stay in church? Simply because mom and dad believe it or simply because this is just a tradition they grew up in. If we didn't think that was a compelling and persuasive reason for the atheist who says, I, my mom and dad were atheists and that's why I believe, then how can we think that that would be a compelling or per- persuasive reason for us or for our young people or for someone else to become a Christian? Because we, I mean, you could grow up in all kinds of homes, right? You grow up in this home, you'd likely be a Hindu, not a Christian. You grow up in this home, you have interesting family pictures, and you'd probably be a Muslim, right? You grow up in this home, you'd probably be a Buddhist. You just happen to grow up in a Christian home, the skeptic is going to say. And so that's why you're a Christian. So that's not going to be a compelling or persuasive reason for people to believe what we believe or for our young people to keep believing what we believe. Christians will say, oh, I just have faith. I'm a Christian because I just have faith in the Lord. Well, what is faith? How does an unbeliever define faith? If you have an atheist friend, ask them what they think faith is. Have them define faith for you. They'll say something like this. This is Sam Harris. He's, a, he's actually a prominent atheist in our culture. He's written a number of books. New York Times bestseller list. Uh, he says this. Faith is generally nothing more than the permission religious people give one another to believe things strongly without evidence. So when you say, oh, I have faith, how does the atheist hear that? Oh, you believe things when there's no evidence. You, oh, so you're going to believe when there's no science, when there's no logic, when there's no rationality to back it up, you're going to believe. Oh, so you have to take a leap of faith. Is that compelling or persuasive for the atheist or the unbeliever? We just talk about faith? No, it's not. And this is actually not the biblical view of faith either. If my atheist friends give me this definition of faith, I say, okay, well, that's not, that's not, that's not faith. (laughs) That's blind faith, but that's not reasonable faith. That's not what the Bible, that's not the kind of faith the Bible commends to us. How about this? Christians will say, God has changed my life. I'm a Christian because I've experienced the transformation of Christ in my life. The Holy Spirit has changed me, right? And when we share these stories of transformation, we call this our what? This is our our testimony, right? We have a testimony of God's transformation in our lives. And I think those are important things to share. Those are things that we should be sharing in our community. Those are things that we should talk about. experiencing the transformation of Christ in our lives. But here's my question. Is that the only thing we have left? Is that the only thing that we have to share? Is our testimony? Is there anything else we can say? Because the problem with a testimony is that other people have testimonies. Uh, Any of you know Mormons? Anyone have Mormon friends? Yeah. Uh, Mormons have a testimony. In fact, if you ask them, why do you believe Mormonism? And if you've done any study, if you've done any careful study of of Mormonism and Christianity, you'll you'll know those things are not compatible. They're mutually exclusive. They teach completely different things, even though we use a lot of the same terminology. So, but when you ask a Mormon, well, why are you a Mormon? Why aren't you an Orthodox Christian? Why are you a Mormon? What they will appeal to as their final justification is their testimony. So one of the unique mission trips that I do with with, with, uh, high school and college students is we do a mission trip to Utah. We call it our theological mission trip. Because uh, what we know about most of our young people is they don't know what they believe or why they believe it. And so, uh, but, you know, instead of handing them like a theology book and going, here, you need to read this theology book. That's just not really effective with most high schoolers. Uh, I, what I do is I go, I take them to Utah, and I throw them in front of a Mormon who knows the Bible better than they do. We'll rip them apart. And then guess what? They come back to me and go, hey, where's a theology book? Help me. And so we find it's an effective way to challenge our young people out of their apathy and then teach them what, what we believe and why we believe it, right? So I've had the opportunity to talk to hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of Mormons uh, over the last 20 years. And uh, I remember being uh, on the streets of Salt Lake City a, a few years back, and we got in this conversation with two Mormon girls that were walking by the temple, and we start talking to them, and uh, start. It was just a really, it started off as a great conversation, just real friendly, asking them what they believe. And then I started just raising questions for them. 
some problems with Mormonism. And there's all kinds of uh, intellectual problems with Mormonism. I'm raising these questions. And I can see they have, they're having a difficult time answering the questions. They're starting to struggle with answering the questions. And so midway through the conversation, one of the girls stops me. And she says, Brett, can I, can I share something with you? I said, sure. Now, I know what's coming. Her testimony. Because I've talked to hundreds of Mormons, and this is where it often goes. Her testimony. And this is what she said. She said, Brett, I have read the Book of Mormon from cover to cover. And I prayed and I asked God to tell me whether or not the Book of Mormon is true and whether or not Joseph Smith is a true and living prophet. And Brett, God told me it was true. And she starts crying. Tears start streaming down her cheeks as she's sharing this moving experience that she had. What is she doing? She's sharing her testimony or what sometimes referred to as her burning in the bosom. She's had this experience that's confirmed for her the truth of the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith. So in that situation where she's giving me her Mormon testimony, what do I say? What do I say? Do I, do I look at her and go, well, oh, I got a testimony too. And, and my testimony is way better than that. <laughs> do, is, can, no, I mean, we see there's a liability there, isn't there? We know that a testimony is a personal private experience. It doesn't mean it's not real. It's just limited in the access that other people have to it. So she's had some experience, some kind of experience. I don't know what her experience was. She can tell me about it. She took it to be God confirming the truthfulness of Mormonism. I've got a, I've got a different testimony. Is there any way to determine whether or not one testimony is right and one testimony is wrong? I mean, do I just say, well, your testimony is false? Or is there some outside source I can appeal to. And you see, you can talk to your Mormon neighbor or you can talk to your Buddhist neighbor or you can talk to your Muslim neighbor or you can talk to your Hindu neighbor. You can talk to lots of people who have lots of different experiences. And what I want to suggest is that an experience alone is not the only thing that we have. And if, the, if all we can fall back, is, fall back to is our testimony, well, other people have testimonies too. And what do we do with that? Do we just say, okay, you got yours, I got mine? I'll, well, have a nice day. <laughs> or is there more that we can say? Now, again, don't mishear me. I think it's important to share testimonies. I think it's, I think it's important to talk about that. I just want to say it's not the only thing that we have. And for some people, an experience is not enough. Brad Pitt grew up in a Christian home. Okay, he's far from a Christian now. He said this, he talks about his upbringing. He says, I had a crisis of faith. I thought you had to experience things if you want to know right from wrong. I'd go to Christian revivals and be moved by the Holy Spirit and I'd go to rock concerts and feel the same fervor. Then I'd be told, that's the devil's music. Don't partake in that. Well, I wanted to experience things religion said not to experience. When I got untethered from the comfort of religion, it wasn't a loss of faith for me. It was a discovery of self. So notice what he says. He's raised in the Christian tradition that tells him the way to know right from wrong, true from false, is experience. Go to church, have a powerful experience. Can you have a powerful experience at church? Yeah. But can you have a powerful experience anywhere else in the culture, in the world? Go to a rock concert, rock out with 20, 30, 40,000 people. That can be a really powerful experience. Why this experience, not that experience? That's the devil. Why? And you see, he's offered this test of truth, this test between right and wrong and his experience, but you can have lots of different kinds of experiences. And if experience is all that, well, that doesn't seem to be adequate to ground the, tr the Christian experience. And so what does he do? He drifts away, he walks away from it because he can have powerful experiences elsewhere. So a testimony is good and important, but it's not the only thing that we have. So what are we left with? What are we left with when our non-believing friends ask us the question, why are you a Christian? Is there anything we do have to say? Because what I kind of done is just dismantled all the reasons most Christians give. So what do we say? If we didn't find those answers compelling from the atheist, why would we think that they would find them compelling from us? Well, I, I do think we have something else to say. And when people say, Brett, why are you a Christian? There's one primary answer I give them. This is what I start with, not my testimony. I start with the truth. 
I'm a, see, the reason why I'm a Christian is because Christianity is true. That's why I think my atheist friends should be Christians. That's why I think my Mormon friends should be Christians. Because Christianity is true. That's why you and I can experience the transformation of Christ in our lives. That's why we can experience the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Because they're true. Because the Holy Spirit is real. Because God is real. That's why we can be changed. That's why we can experience the Holy Spirit. Because it's true. And this isn't just something I made up. For those of you, I mean, I'm assuming I'm in a church where it you know, holds the Bible to be an authoritative source of knowledge. For, so for those of you who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, this is Jesus's message. In John 17, 3, Jesus said this. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now notice that phrase, the only true God. There's one true God according to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying because Jesus said it, therefore it makes it true. I'm just clarifying here. For those of us who are Christians, the message of Christianity for 2,000 years has been this stuff is true. In fact, we have a little resource out on the, uh, the resource table out there. I have some great products that are resources for you. Uh, notice a, it's a little small booklet called Jesus the Only Way. It's nice and thin for the reading challenged. Okay. Um, This book lays out a hundred different verses from the New Testament that make the argument that Jesus is the only way to God, that there's one true God, okay? Because a lot of Christians don't even believe that nowadays. You know, they think, well, everyone's got their own equally valid path. You know, you want to take another path, that's fine. But that's not consistent with what the Bible teaches. You go to the Old Testament. You just survey the Old Testament and constantly God in the story of Israel is constantly reminding Israel that there's one true God. So Isaiah says this, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Of course, Israel had to be constantly reminded about this because they kept, you know, forsaking God and going and worshiping idols and worshiping the gods of other nations. And God has to remind them, hey, these are all false gods. There's only one true God, Yahweh. I am the one true God. Now, again, just because I quote a Bible verse doesn't make it true. At this point, all I'm doing is clarifying. The message of the Old and New Testament is that Christianity is true. That the story of the Bible is true. I'm a Christian because I take it to be true. Now, we're going to have to clarify, though. Because when we say Christianity is true... People will misunderstand what I mean, okay? And we have to make a distinction. There's actually two different ways something can be true. Something can be subjectively true or something can be objectively true, right? What what is subjective truth? Well, uh, think about ice cream. Yeah, you like chocolate ice cream. I think Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream is the best flavor, right? So let's say we're having a conversation and you disagree with me, you go, hey, Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream is disgusting. Do I look at you and go, what is wrong with you, man? You are immoral. You are a sinner. You need help. I mean, this is the one true flavor, right? No, of course not. I mean, we would say something like this. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me when it comes to flavors of ice cream. And so you got your truth, I have my truth. This is what we call subjective truth. It's subjective. Each subject has their own truth. Has their own, actually a good good, word to remember with subjective truth is simply preference. Subjective truths are merely preferences. When it comes to clothing or kinds of food or ice creams, you have your preferences, you have your subjective truths, I have mine. And we don't go saying, hey, you're wrong about your favorite flavor of ice cream. Now, a lot of people in our culture will understand us to be saying that Christianity is subjectively true. Well, that's just true for you Christians because you believe it, right? Christianity is your religious flavor of ice cream. But the Buddhist likes Buddhist ice cream and the Muslim likes Muslim ice cream, right? The Mormon likes Mormon ice cream and everyone can have their own favorite flavor of religious ice cream. 
You just happen to like Christian ice cream. Right? And that's, that's how the world interprets this. But there's another way that something can be true. Something can be objectively true. And the analogy I want you to think of here is medicine. Right? So you, you're not feeling good. You go to the doctors. You say, Doc, I'm not feeling good. He runs some tests on you. He does a diagnosis and he says, sits you down and says, hey, bad news. You have a disease. That's why you've been feeling so bad. You have a disease. Good news. We have the cure. All you have to do is inject this medicine into your arm. You will be healed. What's our response? Well, uh, what other options are there, Doc, besides injections? I really don't like needles. Um, you know, can I take Advil? Uh, what, what else? Can I, I, don't, I don't prefer needles. So what else? What else you got for me? Is that going to be your response? The doctor's going to look at you and go, what, what do you mean you'll prefer this? This is the cure. This is the one true medicine. If you don't take this, you're going to die. Uh, doctor, that's kind of narrow-minded, don't you think? Don't try to impose your medicine on me. Of course you're not going to respond that way because you understand that in the realm of medicine, we're talking about objective truth. We're not talking about subjective personal preferences. We're talking about medicine that either works or it doesn't. And if the doctor knows, and, and, and we have good reason to think that this particular medicine is objectively true, then it's going to heal you. And if you don't get it, you die. And it doesn't matter what you believe, does it? And so think of objective truth, think of medicine. There's a big difference between ice cream and medicine, isn't there? All right, so what do we mean? Do we mean it's subjectively true or objectively true? Because here's what people in our culture will say. They'll come back to you and say, oh, you're a Christian that's just your truth. That's just your truth. And there are a lot of Christians who think that as well. Oh, this is just our truth. Is that what we mean? Do we mean it's merely our subjective truth? Well, when people ask me, or when people say this to me, Brett, Christianity is just your truth. Here's my response. I ask them a question. My question is, what does my dad look like? What? What does my dad look like? This is going to be an analogy to help you understand what I mean when I say Christianity is true. So what does my dad look like? Now, just a question for you. Anybody here ever met my dad before? Does anybody here know what my dad looks like? Okay, nobody knows what my dad looks like. So can I have a volunteer to take a guess at what you think my dad looks like? Who wants to volunteer? Yes, right here. Ma'am, what's your name? Kelly. Kelly. Okay, Kelly. Uh, so give me some specifics. Like what color hair do you think my dad has? Okay, so my dad has brown hair. Uh, how tall do you think my dad is, Kelly? Which would be? 6'2". I like Kelly. <laughs> she is a smart woman. All right, yes, Kelly. So my dad has brown hair. My dad is 6'2". And he weighs, how much does he weigh? Be careful. 210. 6'2", and that, that's a built 210, right? Of course. I mean. All right, so we have a description of my dad. Kelly says my dad is uh, brown hair, 6'2", 210. All right, now, Kelly, that's your truth about my dad. Right? That's her truth about my dad, isn't it? Is that her truth about my dad? Does that seem to be an odd response? When I said that's your truth about my dad, does that seem... To not, not sit right with you? Can Kelly have her own truth about my dad? So let's say my dad is not 6'2". Can my dad be 6'2 and not 6'2 at the same time? No. So she can't have her own truth about my dad. That seems to be an odd response. Yeah, it's just your truth about my dad. No, there's a truth about my dad, whether you believe it or not. So we wouldn't say, we don't say you have your own truth about my dad. We would say Kelly has her own what? Own opinion or her own belief. So Kelly has a belief or opinion. You see, you're entitled to your own opinion. You're entitled to your own beliefs, but you're not entitled to your own truth. Just, just because you believe something, does that make it true? No. Many of us know this. Right? We've experienced maybe heartbreak. I believe that she loves me. If that belief is not true, <laughs> that's going to hurt, right? So look, you're not entitled to your own truth. You're entitled to your own opinion. 
But a belief or an opinion is either true or false. Those are your two options. Our beliefs are either true or false. So we wouldn't say that she has her own truth. We would say she's got a belief and her belief is either true or false. Now, if we wanted to know if Kelly's belief is true or false about my dad, what would we do? Bring my dad in, right? Hey, Gary, come on in. Oh, wait, he couldn't make it today because <laughs> he lives in Southern California. Okay, so, uh, so instead, the next best thing is I would do what? Show you a picture, right? So, okay, take the description. Brown hair, 6'2", 210. Match it up with the picture. Here's my dad. Why are you laughing at my father? Okay. You show me a picture of your dad. I'll mock him. Do you not believe this is my dad? How many of you believe this is my dad? Like one, two people. Okay. The rest of you are skeptics. Okay. All right. Okay. So I haven't given you maybe enough evidence. Now notice something here. This is either my dad or it's not, right? Those are your options. There's no middle ground. Either it's true this is my dad or it's false this is my dad. Now, let's just say this is really my dad. But let's say I can't prove it to you. My inability to prove that this is my dad, does that do anything to the truthfulness of this being my dad? No, even if I can't prove it to you that this is my dad, I can't convince you this is my dad, this still could be my dad. So notice there's a difference between my ability to prove something and the reality of the situation. All right, so, but I, I do want to prove it to you, okay? So I might show you more evidence. So I might say, look, okay, notice my dad there. Notice the, 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 the unique Santa face. Um, my dad's a professional Santa. He actually works in a mall close to our house, and my family and I, we go down and take a picture. Notice the same Santa every single year. We go take pictures with my dad because he's a professional Santa, and because he's a Santa, of course, I'm, I want my family to take pictures with my dad, right? So there, I've given you more photographic evidence. How many of you believe now that this is my dad? Raise your hand. Like, you stop believing. <laughs> oh, you still believe. Okay, gosh. Someone's got to hang with me. You believe. I, I, there's one other person over there that believe. The rest of you are still a bunch of skeptics. Okay, so you might need more evidence, right? So I'd say, okay, well, how about this? There's my dad. There's my wife, my mom, and my dad. No, it's not photoshopped. I know that's exactly what most of you are thinking. That's my dad. How many of you believe now? Okay, a few more of you are being convinced by the evidence. Look, that my, he even has the t-shirt. <laughs> that is my dad. In all seriousness, this is my biological father, Gary Kunkel. Worked for the government for 35 years. In 2003, he retired and became a professional Santa. Yeah. I think there's still a few skeptics in here. So I have one last bit of evidence, okay? Uh, I, I put it in the form of a mathematical equation, okay? Because I know you look at Santa, you look at me, you're like, what in the world? How, you know, how does this work? So you just take Santa, you put him with a short Vietnamese woman, and you get me, okay? That's how that works, folks. Got any more questions? Talk to your pastors. Okay. That, that is my biological father. Now, do, are, are you believers yet? How many of you believe? Yeah. Okay, there's still some skeptics. Okay. My, actually, my dad, he actually does this professionally. He has his own website. Go to santaslittlecorner.com. You'll see. It'll say Gary Kunkel. Okay. So this is my dad. All right. So what, what was the purpose of that? Remember, what was my initial question? What, yeah, what does my dad look like? So someone says, when I say, what does my dad look like? And they give me their description. I, it doesn't make sense for me to say that's your truth. It, that's not a subjective question, is it? The identity of my dad is not a subjective question. It's an objective question. There are objective truths about my dad. There are things that are true about my dad, whether I believe them, whether you believe them, whether Kelly believes them, right? So Kelly said, my dad is, uh, he's got brown hair. Obviously that belief is false because it doesn't match up with reality. She said, my dad is 6'2", right? That belief is false. He's 5'7", 
okay? Uh, she said he's, what was one, 210. He's not 210. He's Santa. He's jolly, right? <laughs> so he's not 210. That belief would be false. So those beliefs would be false because they don't match up with reality. And this gets us to our definition of objective truth. See, our beliefs, our ideas, our claims, our statements are true if they correspond to reality. Philosophers call this the correspondence theory of truth. Your ideas are true if they correspond to reality. So think about it. We do this all the time, right? I might make a claim. My claims are true if they correspond to reality. So I may say, I surf. That's true if it corresponds to reality. If I really do surf. I may make the claim that Jonah is my 17-month-old son. That is true if it corresponds to reality. I might make the further claim that Jonah is the cutest 17-month-old in the history of humanity. And that's objectively true, right? Because it corresponds to reality. All right, maybe that's a subjective truth. But notice, we do this all the time. We, we get our belief. And we don't, it's not like we go around thinking this. And we don't go, do my beliefs correspond to reality? <laughs> no, we just, beliefs kind of happen Beliefs arise in us, and then we just see if they match up with the real world. You know, uh, philosophers call it the correspondence theory of truth. I call it common sense. It's common sense. And I actually know that you all already believe this. We all already believe this. Here's how the Greek philosopher Aristotle put it. He said, if you say that it is, and it is, or you say that it isn't, and it isn't, that's true. If you say that it isn't, and it is, or you say that it is, and it isn't, that's false. Thank God for philosophers, right? <laughs> so that's what you're thinking. Now, he's the first kind of thinker who captured this idea of correspondence, a view that you don't have to be a philosopher to know. You simply have to live life. See, you all believe this already. The way I know that you believe this is that you look both ways before you cross the street. Why do you look both ways before you cross the street? Because you want to get your beliefs to match up with reality. So if I look down the street, I say, a belief pops into my mind. There is no Mack truck coming down the road. And I start to cross the street. And I take a quick glance and go, wait a second. That belief doesn't actually match up with reality. Well, reality is going to run me over and kill me, right? It's going to hurt. And we notice we, so we do this all the time with all kinds of things. Now, some beliefs have much greater consequences than other beliefs. So getting your beliefs wrong about crossing the street can cause a lot of pain. Maybe getting your beliefs wrong about like the church service times, that's not going to alter your life. But what about beliefs about your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend? Oh, I believe that my wife loves me. What if that belief's not true? There's big consequences. Or if I'm a child and I believe that mom and dad love each other, and that belief's not true. That belief doesn't match up with reality. Are there consequences to that? Yeah, absolutely. Now think about our beliefs about God. Does God exist? That belief is true if it's corresponds to reality. And that's my claim here. So let's go back to my claim. My claim was that Christianity is true. When I say Christianity is true, I don't mean it's true for me. I don't think Jesus meant it was just true for him. The claim that Christianity is true is a claim that is grounded in reality. So when I say God exists, I mean it's objectively true that God exists and it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It is true whether you believe it or not. Now, uh, so clarification. Why should we be Christians? I think we ought to be Christians because it's true. I think we ought to be Christians because it's objectively true. It's true for everyone whether they believe it or not. Now, I can't stop there though. It's not like I say, oh, hey, you know, I'm talking to my atheist friends. All right, it's true, period. I win. See you later. Right, we realize there's, there's more because you know what the, que the, the question that's gonna come is going to be what? Why? Why? In fact, that's what our young people are asking. 
This book here, Soul Searching, is a major study done on the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. All kinds of good data comes out and really tells us where our young people are at. But one of the things that they, they asked students, when they came across a student, and it was just a random sample of students, when they came across a student who grew up in some religious tradition, Christian, Hindu, whatever, uh, and they left, they walked away from the faith they grew up in, the researchers asked them, why did you walk away? The number one reason by far that students gave was intellectual skepticism and doubt. Students basically said, nobody could answer my why questions. They said things like this. It didn't make any sense anymore. Some stuff is too far-fetched for me to believe. I think scientifically, and there's no real proof for religion. Right? Too many questions that can't be answered. See, our students, when they get to junior high, high school, they just have this, the, 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 this natural desire to want to know why. I think that's a natural desire for all human beings. We are rational human beings. We want to know why. So mom and dad have been telling me this for 12, 13, 14 years. Why? And what we know in the church is that most Christians can't answer the why. Number one, a lot of Christians are confused on whether or not Christianity is true in the first place. Most Christians just think what we mean is it's true for us just because we believe it. Does, but, but, does believing something make it true? Can you believe reality into existence? No. You don't create reality with your beliefs. You want to make sure your beliefs match up with reality. Reality is indifferent to what you believe. You want to make sure your beliefs match up with reality. And so my claim is that Christianity is reality. But then I want to make a further claim. Not only is it reality, but I think that we have good reason and evidence to think that Christianity is true. So I'm not going to just say it's true, period, I win, end of discussion. No, I have good reason to think it's true. And I think we need to do more than just say, because the Bible tells us so. That does not work with our young people who are getting pounded by questions when they go to high school or college, right? In fact, the scriptures command us to be ready to give those reasons. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter writes this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So we are to always be prepared. Look, as we live out the Christian life, as Christ transforms us, as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds, there should be a difference that people see in us. And that should provoke questions. And they'll look at you and go, why? Why do you have this hope? Why do you believe what you believe? Why are you different? And when they do ask those questions, we are to do what? Always be ready to make a defense. The NIV puts it this way. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Are you ready to give a reason for the hope that you have? Are you ready to do that? The, see this word defense? That word defense uh, comes from a Greek word. The Greek word is apologia. Apologia is where we get the word apologetics from. So apologetics is an essential part of our discipleship under Jesus Christ. Apologetics doesn't mean we apologize. Like, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian man. Right? No, apologetics is the art of giving reasons for why we believe what we believe. Right? There's all kinds of things we believe. All kinds of things that we believe from the scriptures. Why do we believe? Do we have good reason to, to, to believe those things? Is there evidence for those things? And I think there are. And when you discover apologetics, you discover there are all kinds of evidences. Christ does not ask you to have blind faith. No, what God wants is a reasonable faith. Now, so how do we, how do we demonstrate that Christianity is true? Let me give you a, just a quick introduction here. There are four key questions you need to answer to demonstrate that Christianity is true. Number one, does truth exist and is it knowable? That's the first question. Is there truth? Is there religious truth? Can we know it? 
All right? And we can make a case that there is truth and truth is knowable. Of course, anyone who denies his truth has proven truth. All right? Think about it. If someone who claims there is no truth, what have they just done? They've claimed, they've just made a claim about something they take to be true, that there is no truth. Is it true that they, when they, when people say is the, there is no truth, I ask, is that true? Because if it's true, then it's false. <laughs> you see the self-contradiction? If you claim that there is no truth, you've claimed to know something true, and then you've proven your, your, your position false. People go, oh, well, okay, okay. But we can't know the truth. Is that something you know? Do you see the problem? And you can't, truth is inescapable. And we can make a case that truth exists and is knowable. And then the next question is, well, does God exist? Does it make sense to say that God exists? And again, can we do more than say, because the Bible tells me so? I think we can. There are actually, I don't know if you know this, there are actually more than 20 different arguments, philosophical, scientific arguments to th- that give us good reason and evidence to think that God really exists. I mean, it's amazing. And most Christians are completely unaware of this kind of evidence. We have the cosmological argument, the fine-tuning argument, the design argument, the moral argument, the argument from consciousness, and on and on and on. They give us good reason to think that God exists. And all we're doing is what Paul says in Romans 1. Romans 1, 18, 19, and 20. Paul says you can look into the natural world and see evidence of God's existence. God's existence is evident out there. Science is an anti-religion. Science actually gives us evidence of God's existence. Okay? So then if God exists, then this opens up the world to all kinds of possibilities that God acts. What do we call it when God acts? That's called a what? A miracle. A miracle. Of course, we do claim that miracles happen. And particularly, one big miracle in Christianity is what? The resurrection of Jesus. We believe that a dead man rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. Is there any historical evidence to suggest that that's the case? Absolutely. If you look into it, there is an amazing amount of historical material that would lead one to the conclusion that God exists, or that Jesus rose from the dead. Not only do we have evidence for miracles, but then we have evidence for the fact that God has spoken, right? This is what the Bible is, God speaking. And so you make this case, you demonstrate, you give evidence that Christianity is actually true. Now, let me just give you a resource on this because we don't have time to cover all that this morning. But there's a great book that I suggest every student who, before they graduate from high school should read this book. And I think adults should read this book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. This book will take those four steps, actually break it down into 12 steps, and lay out the evidence that Christianity is true. Right? Because you can't just stop at step two. You can't just say, well, God exists. Okay. No, there's more. And this is a cumulative case that we build on. And we get from just that there's some God out there to the God of the Bible, revealing himself in Jesus Christ. And so that resource, we actually have that on the resource table outside. You can purchase that book. We have a few copies left. And that is a resource I say get. Now, our organization offers all kinds of other resources. So let me introduce you to those before uh, we close up here. Uh, our, we have a tremendous website, STR, stand to reason, str.org, all kinds of resources there. We're on social media. We always use social media to send out more resources, to send you to links to different articles or videos or podcasts or things that we do to help you know what you believe and why you believe it. So I'd say connect with us online. You can go to our website this afternoon and check out different videos, different questions, different challenges that we will help you answer. And then all of you should have uh, received this little card when you came in, I think. Did everyone get one of those? Okay, if you didn't get one, we'll have some on the back table there uh, out in the, the lobby. But this is your ticket to a free subscription to a newsletter that we do where we, it's not just any newsletter, we tackle difficult issues that the culture is constantly throwing at us. So uh, a skeptic, a skeptical professor attacks the reliability of the Bible. There are moral issues that we're, we're facing. 
There are all kinds of questions. We will help you think through this carefully. We'll do more than just throw Bible verses at it, but we'll help you think through it carefully so that you can then go out and talk intelligently and winsomely with unbelievers about these issues and to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. And so if you want that, we offer that as a free subscription. All you have to do is let us know where you live. Fill out the card. We will send you free training materials on a regular basis. So you can fill that out right now. Give it to us at the table there. Place for your name, address. If you want an email version, you can do that as well. The bottom box says, uh, talks about helping STR financially. That's just for me personally. I raise support to do this on a full-time basis. So if you want more information about that, you're interested in supporting my work, mark that box. I'll send you some information. Okay. But give us that card and we'll, 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 we'll train you for free. Uh, and give it to me at that, that back table out there. Okay, let me close with one last question here. Here's the question. If Christianity is not true, if Christianity is not true, should you believe it? What do you think? If Christianity is not true, should you believe it? Some of you are like, I think the answer is no, but I don't think I can say that in church, right? No, okay, the proper answer is no. If Christianity is not true, you shouldn't believe it. That's not just what I say. That is what the Apostle Paul said. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want you to see what's at stake here. This conversation is not just kind of about abstract intellectual stuff, but our faith rides on this. Our faith in Christ rides on this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. He, the, the chapter is about the resurrection. And, and, and Paul is dealing with the objection that there is no resurrection. So notice what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. He says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, look, if, it's, if, if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, our faith is in vain. We should be pitied because here we are gathering on a Sunday morning, putting all this effort into something that's not true. I mean, imagine if you went and visited a church down the road and you showed up on a Sunday morning, it was very similar to this. And there was a band that got up and the band started leading the church and people were singing and you were watching the words on the screen and you noticed they're singing songs about a little boy. A little boy who dresses up in a green suit, who flies around and who sprinkles pixie dust on people. Like, this is really weird. And then the, the, the pastor gets up and he opens up a book and he reads a chapter out of this book and he starts teaching out of it. And he talks about how we should follow the example of this young boy. And you go up and you look at the book and you're like, Peter Pan, are you going to go back to that church next week? I hope not. Maybe for entertainment value, but not for, not for organizing your life. Because Peter Pan is a fairy tale. And you wouldn't go back to that church because you don't want to believe in fairy tales. You don't want to organize your life around a fairy tale. If Christianity is not true, that would mean it's a, a fairy tale. And so if it's not true, you shouldn't believe it. That's what Paul's argument here is. Of course, there's a flip side to that, isn't there? What's the flip side? If Christianity is true... That changes everything. If it is true, it changes everything. In fact, Paul, before this, argues that there is eyewitness evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. 
This is historical material we're dealing with here. He points to eyewitnesses, over 500 eyewitnesses who saw, right, the resurrected Jesus. If this stuff is true, it changes everything. If this stuff is true, you and I should believe it. The reason why I think we ought to be Christians is because it's true. And it doesn't matter what you believe. It's true whether you believe it or not. It's objectively true. And we have good reason to think so. I went off to college. I grew up in a Christian home, went off to college. I had my PhD philosophy professor totally dismantle me in college. And I questioned everything. And then I just, and I had never grown up in the church knowing about apologetics. And I discovered apologetics and it saved my faith. It helped me to see that what we believe is reasonable and rational and makes sense. There's evidence for it. And my faith in Christ was rebuilt because faith is a reasonable thing. Christ wants all of you, not just your heart, not just your emotions, not just your experience. He wants your mind as well. And I think, the, and so the more I've studied now, because I went on a search I looked at all kinds of different religions. I went on a search and I discovered that all the evidence pointed back to the fact that Christianity is true. And now I have more confidence than ever before that what we believe is actually true. And I put it to the test all the time. I talk to atheists. I talk to Mormons. I talk to all kinds of believers. And actually, the more I listen to the arguments of the atheists, the more I see the flaws, the stronger my faith in Christ is. And now I have all the confidence in the world to go out and to proclaim this publicly. To t- I mean, I've done debates on college campuses because I think this is true. I'm convinced. Just like the first disciples were. Think about those first disciples. Why did they die for this? Why was Paul willing to be beheaded? Why was, you know, James willing to take a spear in, in his, in, into his body and die? Why were all these disciples willing to be martyred for this? They knew it was true. They saw the reality of the resurrection. And then they went out and they changed the world. That same kind of world-changing faith is available to you and I. And one key thing is to have, to become convinced that this stuff is true. We'll help you do that more tonight as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to discover your truth. Thank you that you have made your truth known to us. Thank you that we can find your truth, not only in your word, but in your world. And I pray, God, that you would help every person in here to take this quest for truth seriously and that ultimately they would discover and become convinced that Christ is true. That he is the only way. That he is the only hope. And that this is the only life that we were intended to live. So Lord, we pray, help us to know the truth. We pray the truth would change us, transform us, and then help us to take this truth to a world that is dying for the truth. We pray these things in the true name of Christ. Amen.